Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of room and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Philip Beverly of the University of Illinois at Chicago. Former Forest Park, Illinois Mayor Anthony Calderon. Brett Hamachuk, the news editor of Human Events. And a little bit later on in the broadcast, James Wiley of Wiley Farms in California. And he is a Californian who attended the D.C. protests on January 6th. And he is going to be talking about that. Our phone lines open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289, both radio and television tonight. Nice to have you with us this evening. Uh, we've got lots to talk about. And again, in that second hour, if uh, if you have real hard questions that you want to ask about people, actually someone that was at the, uh, uh, the protest, uh, this is going to be your opportunity. He's going to explain why he went there. He's going to explain in his own uh, mouth, with his own mouth, what he saw there. It may disagree with some of the things that you may have seen on television, but that's uh, part of what is being debated or being discussed allegedly by the House Democratic Committee uh, looking into the uh, insurrection on January uh, 6th. And again, we're going to be talking about that as the program unfolds this evening. Uh, one of the things uh, I want to ask uh, Brent Hamachuk, who's with the Human Events. Uh, Brent, nice to have you back. I'm beyond Good to the be back. Uh, it appears that the Republicans and Democrats, this bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill that uh, Joe Biden was uh, talking about and touting his ability to put together, uh, it looks like it may be happening. And I want to get your reaction as a, I know you're a partisan Republican, conservative Republican, but uh, is it good that Republicans and Democrats agree on something sometime? Of course not. Uh, certainly not in this case. Look, this, uh, Republicans and Democrats are extraordinarily good in modern times at agreeing on spending money that we don't have. So this isn't just a $1 trillion infrastructure bill. There's a $3.5 trillion bill that's attached to it that the Democrats will push through with just their 51 votes. And we're already, as a nation, at the $30 trillion in debt mark. Uh, we have an economy that produces considerably less than that each year. So this isn't sustainable uh, in the long run, and no, it's not good that they're bipartisan. Tony Calderon is with us. He, uh, for 33 years, he was the mayor of Forest Park, Illinois. That's just west of the city. If you're listening around the country, you may have heard of Oak Park. This is just the next suburb beyond that. But uh, my question to you is, as, uh, as a mayor who's had to deal with potholes and, and infrastructure issues for 30-plus years, um, is it good that Republicans and Democrats can get together in Washington so you guys down the line uh, can, can fix some of the infrastructure in your respective communities? So, Bruce, I have a little bit of a different take, but first I just wanted to make a slight correction. I was the mayor for 20 years. Okay, I'm sorry. So, uh, no, no problem. Um, I have... Uh, I'm going to move your, move your microphone just a little closer in there. There you go. Go ahead. Keep going. I think I, I, think I, I have just a, 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 just a slight uh, take on... You know, um, at the financial needs, especially small communities uh -huh. like the town that I was the mayor of, we're reliant on receiving money from either the state or the federal government or a combination of both. So 
otherwise we would not be able to do any of the infrastructure improvements in our community that we have been able to and that the town is going to continue to be able to so somewhere that but you, how, how much input do you have when someone reads that there's going to be this multi-trillion dollar uh you know amount of money that's going to go to improve roads and bridges and a lot of things that a lot of people would really like to see happen i mean how much of those decisions are made in dc and how much of them are made at state capitals or the large cities like chicago i mean does it does it trickle down to a local mayor of a, of a suburban area who actually has input? Well, it does, but indirectly. So we, as uh, all municipalities, especially here in Illinois, are always going to be working with IDOT, the Illinois Department of Transportation, mm -hmm. for all of their infrastructure needs. That, in turn, is going to channel its way up to the state capitol here in Illinois and then, in turn, to the federal government. Okay. Philip Beverly joins us. He is with the University of Illinois at Chicago. Philip, nice to have you with us this evening. I'd like to get your reaction. Thanks, Bruce. I'd like to get your reaction to uh, uh, what appears to be this bipartisan bill that uh, uh, President Biden and Joe Biden uh, have been touting for a long time. Uh, is that a big plus uh, for uh, the president, or are there still too many pitfalls down the road? No pun intended. <laughs> I, I think it's a. I think it's a win for him. He had had put a lot of political capital on the line to get that done. Um, I, I'm, I'm just curious because I'm not an economist. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm curious about the, the sort of economic implications of, of this. Does it create sort of the, the follow on effect by having people working so much in, in certain kinds of jobs with, with this particular infrastructure bill that it jump starts the economy in a way that ends up, you know, maybe unexpectedly raising more revenue than, you know, I, the IRS predicts. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I think that's all to be determined. And I get that the, the, the debt, if you will, the national debt could be viewed as crippling. I didn't hear the same arguments when, you know, the last administration passed something that added a trillion dollars to the debt. So I don't even consider the debt arguments anymore, which is interesting um, because it, it seems that between 2000 and now we've gone from 5 trillion to 30 trillion and we had gotten to 5 trillion in about 200 years. Let's let's let our about let's let our budget hawk uh, Brett Hamachek uh, take a crack at that. Uh, there, well, it's, it is interesting. So for years, people have warned, warned about debts and deficits. And we are to the point where a lot of people have just grown tone deaf to it because they say, well, where's, where's the collapse? It hasn't happened yet. But that's because, first of all, people think of a collapse in terms of it happening instantly. It happens over a very long period of time. And so what we're finding now is that we're in a situation where we have an extraordinary level of inflation. Inflation is when the monetary supply is far in excess of the growth of the, of the actual economy. Those dollars we have been printing to cover this have been floating around overseas. We are the currency of the world. There's a lot of dynamics at work right now that have other nations looking to trade in other currencies in other ways. When these dollars that we continue to print through the Federal Reserve buying securities and open market operations, when they all come home to roost, we're looking at an absolute disaster. 
interest rates, prices, displacement. But what about the jobs that are going to be created to build these bridges, repair these roads? I mean, there has to be a significant increase in need for jobs, is there not, in this sector? Well, just... And they become taxpayers and those dollars come back through the federal coffers. Well, now we get into a, a really serious question that really comes down to more ethics than economics. Who is it that's supposed to pay for and determine what jobs are had? I would make an argument when the government steps in and starts to pick winners and losers, that's not an ethical solution. When we come back, I want to get reaction from everybody. 1-800-723-8029. Nice to hear from some callers tonight. 1-800-723-8029. I'm Bruce Dumont. Back shortly from Elk Grove Village, Illinois. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. <laughs> I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably... Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. 
I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Tomorrow back, we continue with the segment two of Beyond the Beltway this evening. Nice to have you with us. We're listening from coast to coast. Uh, we're, we're looking at what's been happening uh, in Washington, but obviously uh, the infrastructure deal with uh, uh, the Senate and House is not completely uh, a done deal yet because uh, the Democrats uh, want to put a price tag on it, and once they put the price tag on it, uh, maybe there's there's not likely to be enough Republicans to uh, pass uh, the uh, part two of this bill, which is to deal with the sort of uh, the, the human uh, infrastructure. Uh, a question on the issue of, of human infrastructure. The concept of it, uh, Mr. Mayor, um, uh, Anthony Calderon, I'm, to me you're always Mr. Mayor, but Anthony Calderon is president of Illinois Alarm Company now. But, uh, Tony, is it, um, is it too much to ask that we think that Republicans and Democrats will think responsibly for the government, or is, is nothing going to be on the up and up until we get past the next election? that everybody's looking at 2022 now and trying to get back in power in the House, and everything that's going to happen is, is focused on that. So, you know, Bruce, it's a little bit of a loaded question, but Thank here's you. what I do know. Um, we do have a crumbling infrastructure everywhere across America, okay. and, you know, the cost to repair roads and highways and bridges is just uh, it's excruciating. And where does the money come from? It ultimately is going to come from the federal government. Uh, you know, I, I would agree that, uh, you know, sometimes the infrastructure bills are tied to politics, which that part I mm -hmm. disagree with. Um, but, you know, coming back here at home, we do, all of us, all of us municipalities rely on the federal government for help. But do you, but do you think, though, that it's legitimate to ask, what about broadband? I mean, five, ten years ago, people would not consider that broadband and expanding broadband capacity uh, would have been an important uh, life or death situation for, for many people. A lot of Republicans, probably the majority of Republicans in Congress now, they agree that the broadband expansion, that that makes sense. And that's part of this, this the, the human infrastructure. So would you agree with that part of of uh, uh, an expanded edition uh, or a explanation of, of what uh, is in a capital bill? Right? Well, there, there, there's, there's two different issues, really. There's, do I agree that broadband is now part of infrastructure? Yeah. That's What's sort the of answer a, to that one? I think the answer to that one is plainly yes. That okay. we're, we, live, we live on a, on a highway now that's more technology-driven than automobile-driven. Right. Right. The real question then becomes, what role should government be playing in expanding, creating uh, a broadband infrastructure. I would argue that this is a private sector function. It's not a function of our government. Um, it will be utilized, by the way, then there's a lot more in the, the spending bill beyond uh, just the broadband piece. Right. I mean, there's a lot of social engineering that's taking place. Right. So again, we have. I want to get. I, I want to get yeah. uh, uh, Philip to, to weigh in on that because Phil, I would think that you are probably uh, uh, more enthusiastic about some of these expanded uh, uh, definitions of uh, of what's a human infrastructure. Yeah, uh, the, to start with the broadband. Yeah, we we need to take a lesson from what the pandemic has shown us. 
um, around a number of things and where broadband has is not present and how people in those communities have been impacted. To, to further expand it into to more human development, if you're, if you're talking about early childhood or, um, and, and, and child care and that kind of thing, uh, okay, I, I, I can be enthusiastic about that. Um, and, and I would say though, you know, whenever I hear the argument that, oh, it's not government's job, well, it is government's job if there's something called market failure. And it, I'd have to ask if there's indicators of market failure present um, when, when something like this gets discussed. Again, I'm not the economist. I don't have the fancy book learning about economics, um, but I do know enough to know at least the questions to ask and not take anything really on, on the word of people saying that it is because I say it is. Right. Well, this notion of market failure is often uh, a term that's used when somebody says there's something else that I'd like to do. So market failure is a funny thing. Market failure is about as subjective as it gets. And what it really comes down to is, does somebody think that there's something they'd like to have government do that isn't being done right now? And it's not the federal government's place. It's not the taxpayer's place. It's not the place of the American citizen to fulfill a wish list for people that think we ought to do this or we ought to do that. That's do you not what it means to be a free people. Do you believe, and I want to get Tony's response, do you believe that government has any responsibility at all to expand the concept of early childhood education? Is a that a role or not? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Unequivocal, without apology. It is a private sector the, and parent. Do, do you think that's Gosh. the popular position? Of course not. Not in this country today. We've grown awfully dependent on government. We're sort of a nation of addicts now. We want things given to us. We also have no connection, by the way, between what something costs and what it does. It's all just funny money. Is early childhood education something that you think is now perceived as maybe a right by some people, Anthony? Even though conservatives may not like the expansion of it, as, as Brent said, there's a popularity to this now. So, you know, I, I, yeah, I do think that there's, I think it's a widely accepted. Um, like maternity leave. Uh, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Um, I think that we may be missing a boat uh, in a couple of areas. You know, who needs the early child, childhood development? What is a demographic of those young children that truly need the help? And is the failure really with the parent or parents is a question that I have. But early childhood development could be across the board. In other words, it's the concept. It isn't just poor children that need that, that maybe, you know, the, the average middle-class child need some form of education or nurturing at an earlier age than educators a hundred years ago believed in. And is that, Phil, do you, where do you, I know where you come down on the issue, but uh, I guess when, when is enough enough for those people who need more help, when does government have to say no to them? You know, we can give you more broadband. We can give you early childhood development. We can give you maternity leave. But you know and I know there is something else. There's, there's five or six other things on a wish list 
that primarily Democrats would like to give to the public, and how does it get paid for, and how many people in America really want it and understand that it isn't going to be free? Uh, I, yeah, I, I agree. I know that that Bernie had uh, Bernie Sanders had the idea of like free college and having been, you know, university faculty and now an administrator for you know coming up on thirty years. I can tell you, there's nothing free about college. Somebody is going to pay for it, um, and I think it it really though speaks to a number of factors that sort of intersect that there's no silver bullet answer for any of this, right? And it's really up to our elected officials to decide to say no, to be the adults in the room and say, I hear you and we can't afford this. Either we can't afford it monetarily or we can't afford it politically or socially because it would be it would be inappropriate for where the country is going, right? And, and yet I, I've lost so much faith in elected officials on, on both sides of the aisle in their capacity and willingness to act like they're adults. The, the pettiness on both sides really just sort of obscures the, the actual argument about whether something it should be a fundamental right or should be available to people. And in the meantime, does that, by the way, does, does that, Phil, does that include the Speaker of the House referring to the House Minority Leader as a moron? Would you castigate her for that utterance? Okay, so as a partisan, I thought that was sort of amusing. Right. Amusing. And then I, I read a piece in the last couple of days that 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 basically did a content analysis of some of the things that that the minority leader has said in the past. And what I found interesting about that was that the the author of this particular piece said maybe he's got a speech impediment or a, a, some kind of speech difficulty where, like, you know, Joe Biden is a stutterer. That, and he's overcome stuttering, right? So that's a thing. You can't make fun of people who stutter. That's that's just that's that's petty, right? And so I had to think, okay, beyond my my partisan sort of response to Kevin McCarthy being, you know, sort of put on blast by by the speaker, I thought, I don't think that's an appropriate thing to say. I think you maintain a professional tact there and say, nah, I just think he's wrong in what he's saying here. And here's the facts. But to, to get to the ad hominem attacks, uh, I think that's that I think that's beneath her. And I think it shows a level of frustration of not being able to work together um, that this Congress and the past, what, 10 Congresses maybe have have really been, been demonstrating. Nobody wants to work with anybody. OK, I get it. So nothing does, is the, does the frustration of, of the Speaker of the House in, in calling uh, Mr. McCarthy a moron, uh, haven't we seen that on the other side, though, Brent? I mean, it, it, conservatives have used words to describe Nancy Pelosi and other people. Oh, in, you know. Yeah, no, in, there's in gutter language and otherwise. No, we, we definitely don't have any sort of monopoly issue in Congress when it comes to bad manners. And also, we shouldn't insult morons. Right, they're a protected class. They should be a protected class. Right. I'm Bruce Dumont, 1-800-723-8029. We've got callers on the line. And also, have you got your vaccination? Have you got a card? Have you got a mask? Are you wearing it? 
Get ready. More to come. One forty-five over ninety-two. One eighty over one eleven. One hundred and eighty-two over a hundred, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself. I didn't. Now I do. Uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Overall, it's not good. Bruce Dumont back on the air, and all of our microphones are on, guys, so be careful what you say. Uh, we're going to take a moment now and let each of our guests take a moment to introduce themselves. And we're going to begin with our uh, Zoom guest this evening, uh, Phil Philip Beverly. Philip, can t- tell everybody about you if uh, they've not heard you or seen you on this program before. Thanks, Bruce. I'm a, uh, I guess, recovering political science professor, now turned university administrator at the University of Illinois, Chicago. I teach in the Honors College some fairly interesting courses at this point in my career. 
Do you enjoy uh, teaching more than administrating? Absolutely. It is, I, I tell my younger colleagues, faculty colleagues, that this is the coolest job in the world. Mm -hmm. There, There isn't a better job than this. And don't ever gauge it by the salaries that we make. The the capacity, if especially if you're a full-time sort of learner all the time, being college faculty is awesome. Great. Let me ask you a question, and, and I will expect the... Uh, uh, the accuracy, or at least the ac yeah, the accuracy of your uh, response. You've always been a pretty straight shooter on this program. Would you agree with those who feel that academia is uh, overwhelmingly leftward slant, and that a student who walks into any college is going to be more liberal when they walk out of the college than when they walked in? Um, I would say that we tend to be, as university faculty, more progressive, and I, I think that that's just the nature of, of the training, right? It's about critical thinking. I would say with the students, not necessarily, because if we've done our job well, we've taught them to be critical thinkers, and then they're going to they're gonna take some set of facts and, and evidence and make up their own minds about what the, the that set of facts and that evidence means. Brent Hambacek, tell everybody about yourself. I am the director of uh, operations and the news editor at Human Events. We've been at it now for just a little bit under a year. We joined with uh, Will Chamberlain, who picked Human Events up a couple years ago as a dormant brand. So we've been building the news side. Uh, we just recently brought on Jack Pasovic to our team, and he is doing great work. Uh, we've got some really big things coming up in the month of August, later in the month, in early September. So I would love it if uh, people would add the Human Events newsletter to, uh, to their subscriptions and uh, uh, our website to their desktop favorites. That would be and, great. And to those young people, uh, let's say under 40, that may be listening to the program this evening, you may not be familiar with that brand. But if we were to turn back the clock uh, to the 70s and the 80s and to some extent even to the 60s, uh, Human Events was a major conservative brand. It was a defining brand, uh, certainly in the buildup of uh, the Goldwater movement uh, leading to the Reagan uh, revolution. Uh, human events was very much uh, uh, at the forefront. And as you say, it, it fell dormant for whatever reasons, and now you're trying to bring it back. So good good luck to you. Uh, Anthony Calderon, I will, to me, you will always be Mr. Mayor, but uh, you're also in the uh, Softball Hall of Fame. Uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Thank you, Bruce. So, I'm currently uh, the president of Illinois Alarm Service, a company that I started 43 years ago wow. at the uh, ripe age of 22. And uh, so then a little bit later in life, I think I was 43, I decided to uh, run for mayor of the Village of Forest Park and was successful and, uh, and stayed in that role for 20 years. Uh, not fully leaving my company, Illinois Alarm mm -hmm. Service. I got a great team and staff there, but uh, certainly, um, you know, when the, when the boss is not there, something suffers. So, mm -hmm. but the company continued to grow, and uh, I'm glad that uh, it is now getting my full undivided attention. Is it fire alarms, burglar alarms? What type of alarms? So we do uh, burglar alarms, uh, mm -hmm. fire alarms. Uh, a tremendous amount of video or CCTV systems, mm -hmm. okay, cameras, um, and the stuff called access control. 
Okay, very good. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Dave listening to us in Spokane, Washington. He is a regular listener to this program. He usually adds quite a bit to the discussion. Let's see how he does tonight. Dave, go ahead. Hey, Bruce. Uh, real quick, just a technical FYI for you guys for the show. Um, I, after I heard uh, Philip Beverly introduce himself, and you were talking, for about a minute I was on hold, and then all I could hear was I was listening to a uh, Turning Point religious show, I think a radio religious show, after that while I was on hold for about the next four minutes after that. So I'm not sure technically what's going on, but uh, just thought I'd let you guys know. That's good to um, know. <laughs> so as far as if we're still talking budgets and spending and bipartisanship, I would love to see some bipartisanship as far as reducing the overall deficit that we already have instead of increasing by spending on everything we can possibly think of under the sun. Because kind of similar to an adjustable rate mortgage, you know, back when we had the financial collapse of the economy based on a bunch of people getting mortgages they couldn't afford and uh, getting over their heads, flipping houses, everybody getting these adjustable rate mortgages that were very low, but guess what? As rates started to go up, they started to get underwater, and when the, when the, interest, when the you know, interest rates go up and the housing values are less because the affordability goes down, people couldn't afford their houses, so they couldn't afford the payments. The same thing can happen at a national level when you get so big of a national debt that eventually when rates do go up, I mean, eventually it's going to happen. Just the interest on the national debt alone is going to start handcuffing this country on what we can fiscally do you know, to, to promote things that we want to get done in the country. And then the big, it becomes a bigger problem because the more social programs that you start, let alone starting to reduce some, but when you open up more, it's going to be even more difficult to rein them in because as soon as you give more things away, people, I mean, I gladly will accept Christmas presents, and when you give people more and more incentives of, of uh, financial you know, welfare, uh, you start providing all these programs, they're happy to get it, but whenever you eventually have to say, you know what, we need to reduce these back a little bit because we no longer can afford it, people will go crazy. And it's going to be like those yellow you know, vest protests that you see overseas Dave, uh, in Europe. Dave, Dave, take a, take a breath. Take a breath. Go ahead. Got a lot of fresh air out there in Washington. <laughs> yeah. uh, Brett Hamachek, go ahead, respond. Well, look, we're in a situation now where if in looking for bipartisanship to do something to reduce spending and reduce deficits, it's just, I, I would love to offer a path to success, but there isn't one. Right now in this country, virtually every American citizen is a benefactor somehow of some government program. Over half the people in this country don't have to pay income tax, right? So we're in a situation where in order to reverse this, we would have to have a number of people go to the election polls for a number of consecutive elections and vote against their own immediate self-interest. That's not going to happen. We're not those people. We don't have that resiliency. We don't have that toughness. We don't have the character. We're addicts. So the problem really can't be solved. I say it with a smile because I'm in the fight and doing the best I can, but it's pretty difficult to get people to act against their own self-interest. Uh, yep. Philip, do you agree or disagree with that? Uh, I, I disagree. I think there's there's plenty of Americans who vote against their self-interest every election cycle. I mean, if you're if you're some Walmart greeter and you thought that 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 tax break that that we had in the last administration for the richest one percent was going to help you, you voted against your own self-interest. You may have done it because you're a loyal Republican and all that. And I get it. That's fine. But let's be clear about what our self-interests are. And yeah, we do that all the time. 
Um, and I, I'd like to, to see if we would be willing to cut some corporate welfare as well. I mean, does the oil industry still get government subsidies? We don't like to call that welfare. We use the word subsidies, but I don't hear a, a huge outcry on the right about those kinds of programs getting cut. It's me. always you, on the backs of the, the people who are most vulnerable in the culture. Are you surprised that uh, the, uh, the, the, the House left uh, this past week without passing the extension of the, uh, the, the tenant eviction uh, legislation? That this question is is uh, I'm not you. I'm not surprised at all. I, I I think that that was probably uh, uh, using the people who would be impacted by that as pawns in a game to make the other side look bad by saying, oh, they won't work with us. See, you don't you, you we, don't we blame that. Help you because they won't. And, uh, Phil, you don't blame that exclusively. The, you don't blame that exclusively on Republicans, do you? They didn't support it. But a lot of Democrats. No, no, not I'm not saying I, I blame that on Republicans. I think that all of this stuff, unfortunately, is wrapped up like like taffy and trying to sort of tease it apart. One sort of policy issue from another policy issue, which you should be able to to sort of separate. I I, I think we've gotten to the point that everything is a fight. Everything is nobody can agree on anything. We couldn't agree on masks. We can't agree on people getting vaccinated. We can't. We can't agree on anything that sort of, to some people, is common sense. Is Well, let me ask, I'm going to ask uh, Tony. Uh, in, in, in your view, Tony, is there a common sense answer to where we are now insofar as COVID vaccinations, masks, and maybe the mandatory wearing of masks by people who have already been vaccinated? Is that is that where we're going? And is that common sense to you? It seems to be common sense to a lot of governments and the CDC. What about it's not you? common sense to me. I think okay. that all of us as human beings um, have the right to make our own decisions. <clears throat> I think government ought to leave us alone and let us make our, you know, we, we, we're all capable of making decisions right, wrong, or indifferent. We shouldn't be having government shoving things down our throats, and that's one of them. Or in our arms. What about you, Brent? Uh, amen uh, to to that statement. Are you vaccinated, Brent? I'm not going to answer that question. No, nobody should be asking anybody that. Are question. you now, or have you ever been vaccinated? <laughs> I, yes, I have been. I have been. Yes, but you don't want to answer the question. I don't. Tony, are you vaccinated? I am not. You're not. Okay, and I am. Let's hear from the audience. One eight hundred seven two three eighty twenty nine. Phil, are you vaccinated? Absolutely. Okay, got a break. Back shortly. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. We all have the ability to touch the lives of those around us. To someone going through a difficult time, a text, a call, or a visit can mean so much. Reach out to the veterans in your life today. Let them know they're not alone. 
One simple act can make all the difference. That's the power of one. If you're a veteran in crisis or no one who is, visit VeteransCrisisLine.net for free 24-7 confidential support. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, I'll tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back on the air, and uh, we had answers uh, to the question I asked before the break. Have you been vaccinated? Tony Calderon said he has not. Philip Beverly said that he has. I have said that I have. And Brent Hamachuk has declined to answer that question. Correct. And will never answer the question. Correct. Even if they carry you to jail. That is correct. I want to come back to where government is right now. Uh, by the way, those people who have not been vaccinated, mm -hmm. do you believe that, and this is for both of you guys uh, mm -hmm. in, in studio, do you believe that that population is responsible for some of the other variants and the growing cases and the growing deaths because they have not been vaccinated? Do you think that that's, are they somewhat responsible? There's no scientific evidence of that. There's no evidence, by the way, of growing deaths. We have our hospitals aren't filling up. Our deaths are very small. This remains a disease. They're growing in Florida. They're, so they're, grow, they're growing okay. a little. It's it's not significant. And the idea, this disease has never been, never been, two things. It has never been a deadly disease to people otherwise young and in good health, number one. And number two, and here's the crime, and I mean it is a crime. The American medical community, despite the fact 
that they know how to treat this disease. For the most part, almost exclusively, when people get a positive diagnosis, they are being sent home without prescription and being told, drink water and maybe you'll get better or maybe you'll be back here in the emergency room. We know how to treat the disease. The science is clear. The peer-reviewed research is in. The work that Dr. Zelenko did a year plus ago and what he told the American people is now vindicated, true, it's Who a crime. Is, who's Dr. Zelenko? Vladimir Zelenko is an upstate New York physician who made a ton of news back early in the pandemic by saying that this disease responds well, as all coronavirus diseases do, all variants, to hydroxychloroquine, uh, okay. hydroxychloroquine so this is, this is, as this an is, ionophore this is for one zinc. Do, this is one doctor. No, no, no. There were others. Plenty How many of others? others? How many others? There's well, uh, we're, we're, I, I don't want to get. Tons. I don't want to get into that. Obviously, you don't believe it, but I, I want to go back to the reasons why you have chosen not to to be vaccinated, Tony. So you know, Bruce, in my case, it's just a personal choice. Um, you know, I believe that there absolutely is a virus. I've never denied that. Mm -hmm. But I believe that as adults, um, you know, we we should have the ability to know, for instance based on information provided by the government to wash your hands, wash your hands often. Okay. Uh, if you are going to sneeze, you know, cover, cover your mouth. sneeze, you're, you're lessening the risk of spreading it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. I look at it as purely a choice. As a choice of a human being, I should have that right to decide if I want to or I don't want to and in my particular case, I just don't feel the need. Do you believe that, that where we're going with this is because of the adamacy of a lot of people, and we've heard it, this is two guests this evening, uh, basically saying there's there's no way they're going to, to get it uh, or, or, or take the vaccination. Uh, again, if there continues to be a discussion where government is going to say or mandate or companies are going to say or mandate, you're either going to be vaccinated or you're going to lose your job. A company could say that. Or uh, government is just going to say, we have got to crack down again, demand that everybody wear a mask, whether, it's a stu whether you've been uh, uh, vaccinated or not. And we're going to have to go back to living the lives we lived, let's say, uh, eight, nine months ago. I mean, would you be comfortable if you were complicit in that government decision, Brent? Uh, but if everybody had to, if everybody had to bend over and 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 change their attitude because you personally didn't get vaccinated, how would you would you be proud of that? Would you be telling everybody, or would you be avoiding the question and saying you're not going to tell me? Uh, the the premise of the question, I think, is is slightly faulty. Let me okay, come at well, it. Tell let, me. Let me come at it a different way. First of all, you started by asking the question, are more requirements going to come? Absolutely. I predicted this six months ago. I'm about spot on with the timing of when it started to happen. It's going to get worse. We are going to be forced to wear masks, get vaccinated, lose our jobs. It's all coming. And the idea that somehow or other, if I don't go along with that, I'm the one at fault, that's preposterous. I'm not the one at fault. The, this is not about science. This is about control. This is That's about your opinion. But again, scientists, oh, many scientists would say and many it don't. is about and many is. don't. OK, well, and a, many a, don't. A few may not, but the majority do. And, and again, at the moment, 
they have the control of the government through through the CDC. Oh, absolutely. They're making the demand. And by the way, I don't think this is an easy call for Joe Biden to make. I think he worries about the reaction of moving where some t- scientists may be telling him to go. And that is, we've got to all wear a mask, whether we're, whether we're vaccinated or not. And there's going to have to be other crackdowns in areas of the country, like in California, where the rates are going up. The Delta variant is, is spreading. Delta variant spreads faster than the others. And there may, be other, there may be other variants coming down the road that will be far more deadly. So when and you're so- still not going to get vaccinated. And, and Bruce, do you know why there will be other variants coming down the road? Because people aren't getting vaccinated. They said that last year, before there was even a, a hint of a vaccine. They said, once we get to the vaccine part of this whole pandemic, we need X number percentage of the population yes. to be vaccinated because it reduces the available pool of the virus to exist to go through a natural process of variation of mutation and, and we know way, that Phil, viruses mutate and the Phil, larger okay. the population of unvaccinated people the greater the probability of of these mutations to come so if we're only going to have half the population vaccinated okay that's great we're going to be going through this and there's not an end of the the tunnel here there's no light at the end of this mm-hmm. we're going to go through this ebb and flow of the next mutation and the next mutation and the next mutation until somebody finally gets it that this is just science it's just science <laughs> Bill it's Beverly, people's political personal beliefs we've oh, got a, my right to be an individual we're running that's out right. of, we're running out we are, the are, science we're, we're running science. out we're running out of time thank you for getting vaccinated i'm bruce dumont we'll be back with another full hour for people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated <laughs> It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, You should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. 
If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont back with our number two of Beyond the Beltway. Thanks very much for joining us. 1-800-723-8020. If you've been watching us on YouTube and also on uh, Facebook Live, uh, there may be some audio and or video uh, comments you would like to make about the, tonight's program. I'm always interested in knowing uh, what you're actually seeing and hearing out there. So if you want to uh, send me some comments on that, I will read them after the broadcast and uh, try to improve it for next week. Uh, we are now joined by James Riley. Mr. Riley, thank you for joining us from California tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate okay. it. Okay. You are the president of Riley Farms, and that is in California. And I want to take a moment to let you explain what Riley Farms is. Give me the uh, give me the 60-second version of it. I know you're involved in a as a plaintiff in a in a legal matter, and we will discuss that a little bit later on in the broadcast, but the primary reason you're with us tonight is because you went to the D.C. Uh, protest on January 6th, and I want to hear your uh, reasons for going and also what you saw there with your own eyes. But first, let's, let's put it in context. Tell us a little bit about Riley Farms and what you do. Well, we're a 760-acre apple farm in Southern California in the Oakland area, which is near Yucaipa Redlands, uh, about an hour away from Palm Springs on the 10, mm -hmm. coming from L.A. And we do uh, mostly living history. We, we've seen about 2 million school kids over the years in reenactments of the Revolutionary War, Civil War, Gold Rush era. And um, we're, we're basically a dinner theater site, a uh, place to do you-pick apple picking, and a place to celebrate American history. Okay. Now, that sounds very innocuous, but, again, there's some people that uh, would describe it differently, and we'll talk about that later in the broadcast. But let's go back to uh, what you were doing uh, in, the, in the days and weeks prior to January 6th, and what prompted you to head from California to Washington for the protest? Uh, basically, the franchise, the, the right of every American to vote. And uh, I, I think that what was happening from November 3rd on through December was a realization that there were certainly questions about the integrity of the vote, and there were valid questions. And 
a lot of the people I talked to uh, that went to Washington kind of felt called. They felt like that this was a moment in history that had to take place. And when you went there for the president's speech uh, and the, the just the vast numbers of people that were on the ellipse, I, I have never been around that many people. It, it felt like uh, I've called it Woodstock for smart people. Basically, it was just an enormous number of people in Washington. And it was mostly a celebration. That's why it's odd for many of us what to hear were you it called insurrection. What, what were you celebrating? If Donald uh, we Trump were celebrating the right, the, election, the, the right of Americans to, to show up in numbers and put um, measured, not abject, but measured fear in our leaders, basically, to let them know that they're not voting um, uh, for legislation or for policy uh, without respect to the will of the people. And, and so it was, it was very heartening to see a million, I, I think it was a million, I, I don't know what the official numbers were, but it felt like a million people surrounding the ellipse and the Capitol and letting our, our, our legislative, legislators know that uh, a number of people had questions about the integrity of this election. But again, you're living in California. Uh, there may be some people that question the integrity of the California vote, but it's one of the most democratic states. Uh, Joe Biden won it by a huge margin. So my question to you is, you're, you're a businessman, you're a historian, you're an entrepreneur living in uh, California, and you decide that there's something that you've read about election results in Arizona and uh, Georgia and uh, perhaps Michigan or some other state. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, even California. In California, we have, you, we have a million and a half dead ballots in California. But it prompted you to get off your butt and say, you know what, I'm going to go and challenge this. And uh, was this before many of these challenges had been met and dealt with by a court and a judge? Well, as we know, I mean, uh, when when these challenges are made uh, early on after elections, the courts are very hesitant to, to weigh in. And, and we're now seeing in the audits more and more evidence that what we were concerned about is is truthful. I, I If you ask me whether or not I trust the judiciary system, I, I'm going to say probably no at this point. It's getting more and more political. But but the, but, you know, the reality is when you have stories about people double counting ballots uh, and, and, and in California, just just systemically, we have, a, I think, a million and a half dead ballots. My son, who moved from California to Ohio in 2014, continued to receive ballots from California after he had registered in Ohio. California has no interest in culling their list of bad ballots. We, it, but, James, we, but James, let me just, let me just it, say that we that need also, to know that, that, that if, if you were we need to go to know back, whether the system if you were to go back uh, 10, 12 elections before that, not just in California, mm -hmm. but in other states around the United States, there would be stories, some anecdotal, that would basically say, you know what, we had a little problem here, we had a little problem there. And what you're saying is that you believed that these irregularities, which to a lot of people were you know, expected, they had a degree of truth to you in four or five states 
that got you to just say, not ho-hum, let's go to Washington and let's let's challenge the system? Have I summarized that? Look, look I, I'm a, yeah, well, look, I'm a Calvinist like most of the founders of a republic. We, we believe in the depravity of man. And if you look at election integrity, not just this election, but going all the way back to when LBJ ran against Coke Stevenson in Texas, massive corruption. Right. We know that Kennedy stole the election in 1960. There's no question well, about we, it. We think, uh, we the think mayor of Chicago admitted it to Ben Bradley, we think who told that he did. John Kennedy. That I want to just. Election, I want to. Uh, I want to jump in. I mean, here, contrary to Liz Cheney, I want you. I want election you, integrity James, is not a fact. I want life. you to first of all, let's have a conversation where you talk and I listen, and then vice versa. You have said some things <laughs> that are anecdotal, and I'm talking about. We're and I don't want to spend time talking about the 1960 presidential election. Okay, I'm from Chicago. Why not? Uh, there's a, there's a, there, there's a lot of truth to what you say about illegality here, but I don't believe that 50, 60 years after the fact, there are many people who can give you chapter and verse as to why you know uh, John Kennedy lost the election. I think that's folklore. I don't think it's a fact, but it is part of a, a general feeling in the country by some people, mostly Republican, mostly conservative Republicans. And I would say that I, I come from that, that strain of, 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 of political activity. So I, I believed a lot of that 40, 50 years ago. But since that time, things have been said, things have been written New evidence has come along that would say what was anecdotal in the 1960s about John F. Kennedy uh, are not, they're not fact to be stated on a radio it's show. It's not today. anecdotal. Back shortly. It's a stated fact. Back shortly. It's not. Back shortly. One forty-five over ninety-two. One eighty over one eleven. One hundred and eighty-two over a hundred. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself. I didn't. Now I do. Uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. 
After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. James Riley continues with us in California, and Brent Hamachek and Anthony Calderon join me in the studio here in Chicago. Uh, I want to get back to the specific, the thing that we promoted uh, at the beginning of the program, James, and that is uh, there may be some uh, differences of opinion between the two of us as to what might have motivated you to go to uh, D.C., but did you go there alone or did you go there with a group? I went there alone. I met up with my brother and some friends who, who were going, and we saw several people, including a mutual friend, Karen Sigmund, uh, uh, and uh, Evan Sayet uh, in Washington. Quite a few California kind of Tea Party conservatives were there. Um, and uh, it was it was amazing the number of people who had given up a week of work. I mean, blue-collar people who drove three days to get there. Uh, and um, it was just an amazing crowd. Everything from, you know, Catholic nuns to Boy Scouts. Was to, there anything, um, James? Let me let me just you say, know, you're you you're painting a very rosy picture, which is fine. That's what you saw. But my question to you is, and I'm asking, it, you it's not a rosy a, picture. Uh, that's uh, that's what well, was there. You, These are people who loved America. I, I, James, I'm not saying that a rosy picture cannot be an accurate picture. So please let me ask my question. You've described that the people that you saw there, they were all supportive of your general feeling and your general position. Now, my question is, did you see with your own eyes, did you see other people that might have been a little more vociferous and or a little more prone to violence than you and your friends? No, we were, uh, we were basically on the um, the scaffolding side of the Capitol, and there had been a uh, police line, and I, I, I think there were Capitol police, basically surrounding the scaffolding uh, as we approached. And there was basically an effort, I think, by 
the protesters to just show their presence, basically be there, uh, let people know that, uh, you know, people were concerned about election fraud. And then uh, at one point, the entire police line broke. They ran back into the building and uh, we, we were not close enough to witness any of the window breaking or trespassing that uh, was reported on later. Uh, but most of the people that we were with were basically angry about voter fraud and wanting to make sure that we had a fair election. Okay. Now, I'm going to, uh, our guests in studio, they have some questions for you, but I want to ask you, give, give me your uh, m- medium short answer to this question. What did you see unfold with your own eyes? I mean, we have seen umpteen videos. Uh, many of them were trotted across the House investigation last week. We'll see them again. But what did you see with your eyes, and what's your interpretation of what you saw that night when you maybe went out to dinner with your friends? What were you talking about? What did what did you, what did you experience? Well, the um, when it was an afternoon event, first of all, I mean, right. we we had there was a uh, Washington D.C. curfew that was, I think, in place okay. for six o'clock, so oh, we were out of there well before the evening. But but in the afternoon. Uh, there was just a massive crowd. Nick Searcy is uh, uh, going to be documenting this in a in a First Amendment uh, documentary soon. But the 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 shots of the crowd that are not covered by mainstream media are are pretty incredible. And the number of people surrounding the Capitol was just just phenomenal. We approached from the, the scaffolding side. We saw a very excited, boisterous crowd. Uh, who were waving Trump flags, U.S. flags, Betsy Ross flags, that sort of thing. And we saw a police line. And uh, basically it was what you would imagine at any major event where there's a lot of people, the, the, the police were trying to contain the crowd, I think uh, basically maintain a line of some sorts. And so it was basically very loud, boisterous, patriotic, people singing songs, people singing Battle Hymn of the Republic. Uh, and... Um, I, I had made the comment at the time because I didn't see the trespassing that occurred that it looked like just a good old-fashioned American protest. When did you get the sense that there might have been some violence or violent provocateurs within the crowd? Oh, I think I think when I saw CNN and MSNBC later that evening, Posting the horned helmet fellow walking uh, into the building, and I kept saying to my friends, that, you know, if we had really wanted to commit insurrection, would we have sent in a guy with a horned helmet and uh, chest paint? I mean, it, it, it it's it's preposterous on so many levels that anybody had planned insurrection. This was made basically a first minimum expression to show our representatives that we wanted to make sure the election was audited. Do you believe there were agent provocateurs in that crowd to make things look bad for Donald Trump? Uh, you know, I don't have a security background. I looked around. I saw, I, like I say, I, I'm telling you the truth. I saw grandmothers. I saw guys who looked like, you know, three percenters. I saw a few guys in what looked like paramilitary uh, gear. But the the feeling among our side when we went, the discussions were about what do we do if BLM or Antifa uh, appear? I mean, do we have any protection against those folks? And and the mayor of Washington, D.C. and the Capitol Police basically were woefully unprepared for the presence of that many people. Some people believe on purpose. 
I want to come. But, I want to come back. I want to come back to that. But again, uh, uh, James, I've got two people in the studio. I think they've got some questions for you. Brent Hamacek, go ahead, Brent. And you uh, have a lot of friends who went, but you did not, right? Correct. Correct. I know a lot of people who were there. I mean, I'd like to, if I could, just make a brief comment or two. Uh, I've had a chance to talk to a lot of people who were there. And um, what is going on right now in Washington with this uh, House Commission? This is the full and complete transformation of the United States Congress. Okay, but let's ask a question of someone who was there, and then we'll come back to your opinion. Do you have a question for James? Sure. Uh, Tell me... uh, after the event, uh, if you have been contacted by anybody in the federal government, if they have come chasing after you, looking for things, knocking on your door, contacting you in any way? No, I have not been contacted by the federal government. I've been contacted by several people who have been since indicted who told me that my name was brought up in discussions because I was part of a telegram group that was discussing the event beforehand. But no, I have not been contacted by the FBI, who we all know is a very ethical agency that would never spy on a presidential campaign. What was what was it uh, in that telegram uh, that included you that uh, was talking about the preparations? What did that say? The, the conversations before the event were entirely about defense. What if Antifa, what if BLM, what if they arrived? What if they were throwing frozen water bottles at the crowd? What would what would we do to protect ourselves? It was it was entirely defensive. What was the answer? What what, what were you going to do if they did that? Well, I think a lot of guys, you know, said, you know, wear a helmet, you know, uh, you know, um, maybe consider having a gas mask, uh, you know. But but there was a lot of discussions about, you know, most of us concluded, you know, you don't bring a weapon anywhere near D.C. It was like, what do a bunch of old patriots do if we're attacked by Antifa? And did you see anyone that you thought was Antifa or BLM that day? No, you know, I got, I, I don't know how well some of them might have been disguised. We had heard reports that, you know, Trump hats on backwards would be, I mean, you hear all kinds of you know, nonsense prior to an event like this, but but I, I keep thinking whenever I go to one of these events, why would any sane Antifa or BLM person in the world come to an event that was so usually attended? However, there are times, as we've seen in Portland and areas around the country, where sizable opposition shows up, and it would be foolish to go to an event like that and not at least consider the risks. Did you ever think of going to Portland or Seattle earlier in the year? Did you, th- no, did you we, think that that to, was a, a, a lawless local events in Southern California? Okay. Uh, Los Angeles. So, so, um, but it's very clear that uh, the federal um, agencies under Trump, at least, decided to allow the governors to manage that, and the governors just allowed mayhem to occur. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anthony uh, Calderon is here. He is uh, uh, the former mayor of a suburb area in Chicago called Forest Park. He has a question or comment for you. James, how are you? I'm just curious to know, did you or any of your friends that you either went with or met with there have any desire whatsoever to cause physical or bodily harm while you were there? 
I am laughing because the idea is so ridiculous that these people are tea partiers. They're older folks mostly who have an interest in the First Amendment and interest in the franchise. They want to go to show their love for their country and they want to to remind representatives that there's a sizable portion of us in America who have a historically valid interest in voter fraud because it exists. Contrary to anything Congresswoman Cheney says, it is not unpatriotic to question whether or not we have fair elections in this country. And when we come back, we're going to have to break right now, but when we come back, I want to get your reaction to uh, the videos of the event that you saw later that day or that night or, or subsequently, uh, which tell a, a, a different story. You know, a camera only can tell the story with, uh, through the lens that they're focusing on. I want to get your interpretation of what you saw and how you thought the general public would react. And then we're going to get into a discussion that Brent wants to talk about, the investigation by House Democrats and a couple of Republicans and to find out what happened that day in D.C. Back shortly. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its Pre-Diabetes Awareness Partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. 
If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back. We continue. And uh, James Riley, he is with uh, Riley Farms. That is in California. And uh, that is an educational uh, group, almost a, th- a theater group that recreates American history. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, you're now a plaintiff in a case out there because you have been canceled by uh, one of the local school boards. And I want to hear that story a little bit later on. But we're talking about your observations having gone to uh, the January 6th uh, uh, uprising uh, or protest. I'll say it's protest at uh, the Capitol. Uh, Mr. Hamachek, I interrupted you before when you wanted to take the conversation into a different level. But uh, questions for Mr. Riley as to what more he saw and uh, most important uh, what's what's going to happen now well I I think we've covered what he saw I I guess I'm curious um, of course I'd love to share my reaction but I'm curious what your reaction is now that uh, the Polit I mean I'm sorry the house has opened up their hearings into January 6th and we had their first couple of days of show trials and produced witnesses and I'm wondering what you're thinking as you're observing that based on what you saw, what your perspective is. Well, every word that proceeds out of Adam Schiff's mouth and Nancy Pelosi's mouth is a lie. So I've avoided watching those hearings. I think that that's political theater for them. It's uh, purely a political process. If even Rhino McCarthy can't get his appointees uh, on that select committee, it's not worth watching. And I would recommend most Americans uh, avoid that because it's not about seeking the truth. Well, one thing that that I would observe is that, and by the way, I have been very critical of the makeup of the committee. I don't think that uh, you, you knock uh, two Republicans off the committee and you replace them with the two most uh, vocal anti-Trump uh, members of Congress. I don't think that indicates that you want a fairness on the ultimate yeah. result. However, I will say I, I thought that the the evidence or the hearings and the testimony of the police officers, the Capitol Police officers, was very moving, very telling. You may think it was overly dramatic, but what I'm just saying is that if I'm if I'm an average person watching that on television, and again. It was on during the day. A lot of people only saw clips of it. But the the clips were powerful. The testimony was powerful. And I cannot believe that there were thousands, I don't think hundreds of millions, but there were thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people who were home watching it on television. Maybe they're older. Maybe they're Republican. But I cannot believe, and by the way, these are people I think generally that are pro-police, I believe these are people that can be affected by the storytelling that we saw. It was powerful. You may think it was all theater, but my question to you is, and I assume you're a law and order guy, as most Republican, many Republicans are, that the power of those police officers, again, you said you didn't watch it. Well, I got to tell you, as, as someone 
who I, I think has watched a lot of use of television by liberals and conservatives, I thought those police officers were dynamite. Now, whether it, whether it results in solidifying votes for, for anti-Trump well, candidates, can, but it was powerful. Hey, I can see. Go ahead, James. Go ahead, James, are you there? Hello, James, are you there? Can we try to get James back? Can I res You can. The well, role of James I would, is now being played by Brett Hamish. I would love to. Look, of course their statements were powerful. That's what theater is supposed to be. Yes. Here's a question for you. Where are the other police officers? You say, what others? Where are the others that would tell a different story? By the way, this officer who testified. They weren't invited. Right, and they're not going to be. So at human events this week, when you're making, but but would you acknowledge that if when you're making a case to Congress or to the general public, whether you're all Republicans or all Democrats, you will you will use the power of your platform correct to present your case correct. And this so is, again, there this, may have been others. Let's, to me, that that's not a good example of looking for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But it's, it was powerful. If right. I could interrupt for a yes, minute. Can, you're back. Good. Can you all hear me now? Yes. We're, we thought okay. that you had been I was there, and I, I was there, and I, I genuinely felt some compassion for a police force at the Capitol that was, out, that was totally outnumbered by the number of protesters there. Mayor Bowser and, and Nancy Pelosi failed to protect the Capitol, knowing that a million people might be on site. Their utter incompetence left those frontline police officers without any resources, and that is the problem. We're not having select committee hearings on the Portland police officers who've been beaten, or the Minneapolis police officers who've been shot at, or the the, the massive number of BLM. Uh, James, I James, of, I agree. Uh, I James, I agree with you. I agree with you 100 percent. And the investigation into the security or lack of same and the preparation for it and all the questions that need to be answered about the National Guard, when were they called, what happens. I mean, all things, by the way, that probably could be, they certainly could be answered by Donald Trump. Most of them could be answered by Vice President Pence. Those are the people that can tell that piece of the story. But the, the, the narrative at the moment is not on the, on the lack of police uh, preparation, which I think is absolutely a bona fide question, it is, it's what people saw with their eyes. They saw the, the building of the United States, the capital of the United States, the people's house. They saw people with, with American flags mm -hmm. using them as spears, using Trump-related signs in, in bashing, uh, you know, members of the, of the police department. And, uh, you know, some of, of those that were there, not they weren't necessarily in your group, I'm not saying they were, but I mean, they did bring bear spray. They were not. Well, they, they, that's the that's the thing. We we witnessed a year of gross violence and murder uh, over BLM and Antifa pro protests, yes, right? Without any select hearing at all, basically. And they, we're not hearing it from any of those police officers who had to face those animals out there in Portland. Here's a question. You, I got I got to ask one question. We're hearing. I agree. By hearing, the way, I agree with you. We're, we're, no, no. I I I just need I need to make okay, this go point. Ahead. Sure. I was talking to a young woman the other day who was lamenting, lamenting the fact that BLM activists were, were tarred by some violence that occurred at their protests. And she thought every one of those million people in Washington were doing the same things as the horned helmet guy 
or the guy breaking windows at the Capitol. This is a, is a ridiculous double standard. It's political theater. It has nothing to do with finding the truth. Have you asked yourself the question, the, the rioting and the disruptions and the attacks on the federal properties in Portland for day in, day out, for months, and to a lesser extent in Seattle, my question to you is, Donald Trump was the president of the United States. He was the commander-in-chief. He spoke directly with the Attorney General of the United States, the FBI, the CIA. All the power of government was rested in Donald Trump during that period. Have you asked yourself, why didn't he do more to find out what the hell was I happening the, in Portland and Seattle? And the answer is so obvious. I, the answer is so obvious, I'm surprised I have to tell you. Tell me. Donald Trump respected the state sovereignty, the state's rights of the governors who were too incompetent to protect their own facilities. This is if Donald Trump had gone in there with federal troops, you know as well as I do, he would have been called a Mussolini, a Hitler, for using federal troops to suppress. In 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 reverse of that, in Washington D.C., a few grandmas go with a few agitators in the middle who are willing to break windows, and now we're accused of insurrection. This is utter as I do. Okay, I think we got that. I think I think the censor got that. Did the censor get that, Frank? You were on it. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I want to go to Brent Hamachek, who's going to uh, uh, offer a uh, not a rebuttal because you agree every, with everything this guy says. Right, I, I absolutely do. Look, I want to make I want to make a point. This committee needs to be taken so unseriously, but very seriously by the American people. Unseriously because. In terms of an investigation, that's not what this is. Let's be very clear about what it is. The general purpose is to stigmatize and demonize anyone in this country who supported Donald Trump so that we can be marginalized and relegated to dissident status, to take our rights away, to take our voice away, and to have us be pushed aside and afraid to even step up and speak out. That's the general purpose. Here's what they're trying to do very specifically. They're trying to use this to feed red meat, red meat to the minority in this country that's very focused around politics, their base. In, in, in beyond that, they're trying to serve enough other foods to people that don't pay a lot of attention to politics so that those people say, gosh, those police officers, they sure were compelling. Maybe these Trump people are pretty frightening. Maybe we do need to do something to clamp down right. on them. That's the goal, and that's really serious stuff. This is Soviet Union tactics. This is why, Eastern Europe. Why do, why do you believe, in, and I asked everyone, at least Facebook friends, uh, to comment on Adam Kinzinger's appearance on ABC today. I don't know whether anybody saw it. Because probably when you hear the name Adam Kenzinger, you turn the TV off, run in the disgrace. opposite direction. Right. You say he's a disgrace. Okay? Absolutely. I disagree with a lot of Adam Kenzinger in the past, but I'm going to say his appearance on this week I thought was thoughtful. It represented a part of the Republican Party that you're not a member of, you don't represent, but it's out there. These are people that left Donald Trump. They, they left the Republican Party at the last congressional elections. They may, they may have disliked Donald Trump. Some of them may even have liked Donald Trump. They liked Donald Trump until January 6th. 
And that's when they turned against Donald Trump because of the way he acted that day. In their view, and no. those people, there's those, none of those people. I'm going I'm to let you respond. No, they don't those, exist. They, they do exist by the millions. I'm Bruce Dumont. No, they don't. Back shortly. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, You should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, tell me what to do. Cannonball! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back. This is our final segment of Beyond the Beltway this evening. And before we went to the break, 
uh, as we were going to the break and our music was playing, James, uh, you were saying things over the music and over my uh, voice that people may not have heard. You disagreed with me. Tell me why. Well, the, the notion that people uh, in the conservative movement are upset with Trump um, is a very, very fractional, um, um, marginal section of the, of the electorate of the conservative movement. Basically, the, the, I didn't say the, the conservative reality, movement. The, the, no, the notion, the notion that someone can't be rude in response to the utter rudeness and depravity of a Nancy Pelosi or Adam Schiff uh, or uh, Joe Biden. We need fighters. We need people who are willing to fight for liberty. Trump was that guy. And, you know, the, 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 uh, the David French style, you know, conservative who can't stand someone who can actually get something done. That, that doesn't have any currency with most conservatives. I totally, just a minute. I, I, number one, I did not say conservative Republicans. I said Republicans, number one. Let me just also say, yeah, but, but, I but totally agree. I totally, I totally, I totally agree. Those are not real Republicans. I totally, I totally agree with your description of the Trump Republicans and Trump's rhetoric. I don't disagree with that at all. That's why he did get elected. That's why mm -hmm. Bob Dole was never president. John McCain was never president. Mitt Romney was never president. Right. They were too polite. Right. But my question to you is, in the mm -hmm. broader world, people that are casually interested in politics, they don't live and breathe it like everybody around this table, they, they see or hear uh, loud talking what they would be view as impolite people talking about Republican or conservative principles, and they don't like those people because they don't like their personality. They're too rough. They're it too doesn't rough. matter. It doesn't wait, matter. Impolite they have a vote. Don't wait, 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 wait a minute. I mean, impolite people James, are not the participants. James. The, James. The left, listen the left to what I'm James. Listen to what I'm face. saying. The James, right you're not listening. You're not listening to what I'm saying. I'm saying there are people like that and they are in the millions. They they are they they consider themselves Republicans. You don't, but they do. And they did not like Donald Trump. You loved Donald Trump. Brent Hamachek loved Donald Trump. Oh, okay. But, but here's the point. Let's, let's they still we vote. Those people still. Those we know. People, I don't Trump know that. But we, we, we know. We, about, we, uh, but would you acknowledge that, that these people exist? These people exist. They vote, and they will vote. They will vote against anyone who was at the insurrection, and they will vote against anyone that supports the insurrection. And those people, those people, they have at least two members of Congress, Lynn Cheney and Adam no. Kinzinger, who are speaking for them. Not for you. Not for you. By God, they're never going to speak for you. But they speak for those people. Right, and those people are as statistically they, insignificant they, they don't matter. as Lynn they, Cheney they are. They, they are statistically, statistically insignificant. Well, i got to tell you, if they, if they were, just a second, if they were significantly insufficient, Okay, they lived in Arizona and Georgia and Pennsylvania, let, let me and they, and, and they let may me be insignificant, but, but they were enough. They were enough to make Donald Trump the former president fair, of the fair United enough. States. Let, let me adjust what I said and, no, and no, say a little no, bit better. No, Wait, if I could. No, a Maricopa election board that won't release results—that's what killed Donald Trump. That's Arizona not the voters. If there's, you're, you're pretending, you're pretending as though these these people actually care. They don't really care. The people who care are on the left and the right. 
Those are the people you talk to. What about people who are conservative? Over the moderates. What about people who are solutions? What about what about people who like Bob Dole? What what about what about people who liked Bob Dole's Republicanism? Should they be thrown out of the party? How did Bob Dole do? How did how did he lost? Bob Dole get elected? He lost. Did John McCain get elected? No. They did not get elected. No. Bruce, it's not about. But what do we do with those people? Do we throw them over? What do we it's do? It's not about throwing do we bury them. them? What, no, what do we do? Because you know what? They vote. The, we don't pay anybody that's alive that's we, voted we win, for Bob Dole. We don't panic. We win to them. them over and we won them over. We won them over. You won. We were Donald the, the Trump won them fraud. over and then we, we he won some of them fraud. over and then we, he we lost them. We allow voter elections to be run by people who look like they work at the DMV. These are people who are socialists, who are progressives who do what they're told by their party machine, and that's why we lost this election. Just why we lost it in 1960, just why we, in California, we have a million and a half dead ballots out here. James, Voter fraud is a James, real thing. James, let, you, let me ask you, 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 you let me ask you, James, I do care about it. But you know what? I deal with reality. Do you know anyone, do you know anyone in your life, in your sphere of influence, who doesn't like Donald Trump. Not hate him, just doesn't like him. Do you know the, anybody? I mean, I, I, I know people who don't like Beyonce. It's not about who we like, who we're emotionally attracted yes, to. It is. Right. It's about the He's people right. who will care enough to go out and vote for a, you know, a candidate. And Donald Trump excites the base. He, he, he brings to the base the, the issues that are important to them as opposed to a Mitt Romney who, who refuses to go on the offensive, or a John McCain who, who deep sixes his own, or a Bob Dole who says he doesn't care about the platform. You are not going to win with those losers. You will not win the with people, moderates. The people, you, you, the people you, you, in Barrington people care don't about like it, him. And, and you win elections or you don't. People on the North Shore don't like him. But, Bruce, it's a numbers game. The yes, it is. Uh, well, wait. Hold on. Of course. The Republican Party now has changed so that when so you look at current polling, uh, an extraordinary 80-some percent uh, have a general support for Trump's policies. So you're talking about a smaller group within the party, and you're right. They make a difference in a close election. So the, uh, wait, but hold on, please. Please. So, yes, they make a difference, but you can't build a party around them they're going to have to either join or we're going to have to attract others right because we're not going to take the 86 percent and turn them back into the 14. i agree that's not going to happen so what we need to do is we need to stay focused on principles and policies and get away from personalities that's easily said in politics but not necessarily that is correct Factual. On that note, we are out of time. Uh, James Riley of Riley Farms in California. Jim, we didn't get to get into your current California situation. We'll do that in a few weeks, okay? Thanks very much for being with us. We've disagreed on virtually everything. Anthony Calderon, Brent Kamachek, we thank you very much. Pleasure. Our thanks. One thanks for having us. has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy. Or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, 
your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council.